Good morning to our loyal WFYL listeners around the world. Welcome back to your Philadelphia Friday, only on Fox News Radio. I want to thank each and every one of you for tuning in once again, because you still have the right to hear and the right to be heard. We're here with you on 1180 AM and broadcasting real time at 1180WFYL.com. Coming to you straight from the birthplace of liberty here in the greater Philadelphia area. And we continue to bite day in and day out as your voice of freedom in the Delaware Valley. I'm attorney Mike Jeremita from Jeremita Law Offices, but everybody knows me as Mike G., And you're listening to Mike G. in the morning with The Law Matters. And you can listen to our program every Friday at 7 a.m. Eastern, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. So let's be heard. You know, with everybody staying in place, I hope we're all taking the time to get involved. And the Mike G in the morning social media platforms participating in the free and open exchange of thoughts and ideas throughout the entire week. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash Mike G in the morning. Don't forget to like our page. YouTube, Mike G in the morning. Check out the most recent video, Philly Chris hitting the streets, seeing what the homeless are doing to cope with COVID-19. Don't forget to like our videos and subscribe. Our Twitter handle is at Radio Mike G. And we've also got a screen name on the Instant Grams website. Our screen name on that Instant Grams is Mike G in the morning. I also want to remind our listeners about the powerhouse lineup we've got here at Fox News Radio WFYL. We've got Ben Shapiro bringing you the Ben Shapiro Show weekdays from 3 to 6 p.m., Scott Adams with the Scott Adams Show weekdays from 9 a.m. until noon. Second Amendment advocate Dana Lash comes on weekdays from 1 p.m. right until Ben Shapiro. And finally, we've got Michael Savage bringing you the Savage Nation weekdays at 6 p.m. So don't forget to tune in and show him some love. And with that... You know what time it is. Buckle up and enjoy the ride. You know, we've got a very special guest coming on the program today. Last week, Jose Morales joined us. He'll be with us again today, along with Philly Chris. But we spoke a little bit about ham radio, alternate forms of communication during times of emergency. And we've got Gary Wordak, chairman of the board of Mosley Electronics. This guy's a real pioneer in this field. He'll be joining us by telephone later on in the program. But before we get to him, I want to give everybody a little bit of an update with what's going on with gun legislation. You know, in these times of emergency, you have to understand that gun control proponents advocates. Never let a good tragedy go to waste. Now, I'm not going to take a ton of time to talk about this today, but I want to bring a couple of things to everybody's attention. 
just to make sure that we're up to speed with what's going on. Because when they push these gun control measures through, it always happens right under our noses. They catch us while we're sleeping. So I want to tell everybody a little bit about H.R. 5717. And a quick disclaimer here. Everybody knows on this program, I'm not a lobbyist. I'm not a politician. I'm not going to stand here and tell everybody what I think the law should be. I can certainly tell you which ones I think are good or bad ideas. But what I want to do today is I want to tell you a little bit about the impact of these proposed laws. What they would do to law-abiding gun owners. And I don't think it's too much for me to ask. It's for you to think for yourself, make up your own mind, and decide. I think that's fair. So H.R. 5717, what's this stuff all about? It's a House bill that was presented at the end of January. And really, if I wanted to describe this, the best way to do it would be this. If we were to take a room full of a hundred people and tell each and every one of them to think up one gun control measure in their head, any kind of measure, and then write it down. And then everybody puts their idea in a hat and you turn the contents of that hat into a bill. That's what we're looking at here. It's 260 pages. So that should give you some kind of hint about what we're looking at over here. Now, the name of this bill, I think it perfectly sums up the game plan of the gun control movement. The anti-gunners. They call this bill the Gun Violence Prevention and Community Safety Act of 2020. And the insinuation is that if you don't support all 260 pages of these gun control measures, well, then you must obviously be for gun violence and against community safety, which is obviously absolutely ridiculous. And it's insulting to the everyday law-abiding gun owner. But the bill starts out with a federal licensing requirement. And what that would mean is that anybody in this country who wants to own, purchase, acquire, or even possess a firearm or ammunition would have to first get a special federal license. There's nothing like having to see government permission for exercising a constitutional God-given right, is there? Now, notice they don't mention carry under this federal license, so they're not even willing to concede that if you jump through all these hoops, it should count for something beyond your front door. So what would you have to do to get one of these licenses? You'd have to take a special class. You'd have to pass a written test about gun laws. You'd have a functional test as well, where you'd have to perform a shooting qualification. You'd have to perform a safe handling demonstration. 
You'd have to submit photographs, submit to a background check, and you'd have to go through a renewal process every 10 years. But one of the things this licensing requirement would really do is it would essentially create a red flag process at the federal level. Because this bill allows the ATF, the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives, to file a petition requesting that an individual's license be revoked or that an individual's license be denied in the first place. And therefore, you'd have a court hearing, and the license could be denied or revoked if the court reaches one of the following conclusions. The first way is if the court finds that it's more likely than not, keep in mind, this is a very low standard, preponderance of the evidence. They'd have to find that it's more likely than not that the person has exhibited behavior to suggest he could potentially create a risk of public safety. I don't see that being vague at all, right? Not at all discretionary. The second possibility is if they, quote, determine other existing factors that suggest the individual could potentially create a risk to public safety. Other existing factors? What does that consist of? Whatever they feel like, I guess, right? So basically, you'd be entirely at the mercy of the court and of this agency, the ATF. And the standard the court's supposed to use is a very low burden. Preponderance of the evidence. More likely than not. Think about it like this. This is a 50.000001% chance. This is not beyond a reasonable doubt. And that other factors standard? The court could basically consider whatever it wants. Use whatever it wants to deny people the ability to lawfully possess firearms. Kind of like Philadelphia does with the character and reputation clause these days. Oh, you had a parking ticket 10 years ago? Uh, you got a dangerous character and reputation. You can't own a gun. Some of the other things in this proposed law, you'd have a prohibition on the purchase of multiple firearms unless you're a dealer, meaning you're limited to one firearm per 30 days. Requirements for universal background checks. New requirements for storage of firearms. Mandatory reporting for lost or stolen firearms. Expansion of the Gun-Free School Zones Act to include higher education and to get rid of exceptions presently in place for those with a license to carry firearms. We talked about how there's a backdoor red flag. Well, guess what? They also included a front door red flag move because it provides grant money encouraging more state-level measures to be enacted for extreme risk-protective orders. So for those of you who thought that they were sleeping on the other side, the anti-gun side, understand that it's exactly the opposite. Do not let them catch us sleeping. Because I want you to understand this is only the tip of the iceberg. They will never be satisfied. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G in the morning with The Law Matters. 
only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. You know, last week we started to talk on the topic of amateur radio, and we've got a very special guest on the line with us today, Gary Wordak, chairman of the board for Mosley Electronics. Gary, are you with us? Yes, I am. Uh, good afternoon, uh, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate you taking the time. Gary, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about Mosley and your history over there? I'd be glad to. Uh, Mosley was uh, founded by uh, Carl Mosley in 1934, and he was an engineer with Southwestern Bell that uh, was also an amateur radio operator. And in 34, radio uh, period was just getting on its uh, feet, and there was a lot of experimenting and so forth and so on. Well, Carl was an engineer and an experimenter, and at that time, antennas were mainly uh, omnidirectional. There wasn't any uh, uh, specific direction of signals. They just put them out all over the place. Well, Carl, in uh, 1939, started playing with uh, antennas and trying to determine how to get uh, directional uh, signals. And from that, he evolved and created the first uh, uh, tri-band beam, metal enclosed that you could rotate, not take up a lot of area, and so forth. And from there, it's been progressing onward, uh, stressing quality. Uh, we use all American material, American labor, uh, American parts built here, so forth. Uh, in 1982, I purchased the company from Carl and uh, have been uh, president and now chairman of the board uh, uh, since then. Uh, I also design and have invented, so forth. We make amateur, military, and commercial and about uh, 80, 85% of our product today uh, did not exist before 91. So there are innovations even in an old subject. Wow, that's fascinating. When you purchased the company, did you already have an interest in this particular field? I've had uh, an interest in this since I was seven years old. Wow. Uh, and that might uh, bring us into how I got interested. The I was on a Cub Scout drive, paper drive, and I found a, a catalog that uh, talked to the world. And I grew up in sort of a, a modest neighborhood and so forth, didn't have a lot of uh, skills in terms of communication and things. And it really intrigued me to be able to talk to the world. So I went around. I heard uh, hams were friendly. I walked maybe about two or three miles from my house. Saw a big antenna on a roof, went up and knocked on the door and said, I hear hams are friendly. Would you help me get a license? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that's the way it started. I was about uh, seven when I started. And when I got my first license, it was in the mid, late 50s, something like that. And off to the races. So I've been playing with antennas and uh, loving that all my life. So, you know, given what's going on in the world today, We've had a lot of interest in our listeners from Ham Radio. Over at Mosley, you've been making ham antennas for decades, right? That is correct. Uh, 81 years. So uh, and, we must be doing something right. It uh, sounds like it. You know, it's a, it's a specialized market, so uh, uh, not everybody's going to want one or what have you. But uh, 
mostly has been and uh, will continue to uh, make these products for hams and commercial and military and so forth. Now, I heard you say something very interesting from when you got involved, that, that hams are generally friendly. Has that been your experience? Oh, yeah. No, it's it's really a great uh, group of uh, people uh, from all walks of life. One of the things that uh, I think we had talked about the other day was, uh, do you have to have a lot of technical background? In the beginning, you maybe did. It was an evolution of radio uh, technology at the time where nobody knew what they were really doing, you know, it was all a new invention and so forth. And you had people that were in the broadcast industry, engineers, technicians, and so forth. And they were the ones that sort of rotated toward uh, uh, a ham radio. But as time went on and radio became more familiar to people uh, and so forth, it, it more accustomed to it, and other people thought, well, this might be fun to do. And people with curiosity and what have you uh, started uh, finding out how to get a license. Uh, there's a organization, uh, ARRL, Amateur Radio Relay League, that uh, is in Newington, Connecticut, that uh, you can write to or, or contact that will have books on how to get started and so forth and so on. So as it evolved, uh, a doctor decided, you know, he's got some free time. He wants a little diversity. Uh, he can get on the radio anytime he wants and talk anywhere he wants in the world. So it's it's a lot of fun. It does sound like a lot of fun. And I know a lot of people might look at ham radio as some kind of fun hobby, but as a very practical matter, I think it could be a resource that serves a serious purpose during an emergency. What are your thoughts on the importance of alternate forms of communication like ham radio during an emergency? Well, it's it's uh, paramount, I think, because if you recall, uh, during the tornadoes and hurricanes where communications cut off, all of your Red Cross and uh, basic communications are through ham radio setups under emergency conditions. They're, they're, they're being run by, uh, uh, you know, gasoline-driven gener generators in the area and uh, temporary antennas set up and communicating uh, what they need, supplies, and so forth. And something that a lot of people don't know, that uh, when uh, Reagan went into Granada, remember when the doctor uh, hospital problem down there? Sure. Uh, they lost communications. And they were being relayed to North Carolina, to Washington, D.C., through ham radio. So <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a, that's a pretty serious uh, event. Uh, so uh, there are uh, groups of uh cams that form what they call traffic nets and each state has one and then locally each city has one that's called uh, uh, races which stands for uh, uh, races as uh, amateur radio amateur communications emergency services hmm. and that's that's in local areas as well as uh, throughout the country so, oh, yeah, it's a very, very uh, important ingredient because if something happens in a disaster, I think like you folks up on the East Coast there, when the hurricanes came in and that, I don't believe you had any power. I don't mm -hmm. think you had any communication. I don't think you had any source of getting to where you wanted to get to. And emergency radios were set up to uh, fulfill that need. 
So why is it, mechanically speaking, that ham radio persists when maybe these other lines of communication are not available during these emergencies? I think because they're uh, standalone situations. Uh, in other words, I have a complete radio station here that is uh, powered by uh, backup alternate emergency power that I can communicate with anybody on these discrete frequencies that we set up under this uh, RACES program, emergency hmm. traffic. And uh, you'll have somebody in New York that has a emergency station. He's on the air with that. He gets to me. I get to the people that he wants to get to. And to show you, uh, before satellites and everything, uh, in Vietnam, a lot of times uh, people to talk to their loved ones used ham radio through phone patches. In other words, I'd connect my phone to my radio and the guy in Vietnam would connect his phone to a radio and you would have servicemen that could talk back to the States uh, free wow. used to run as a free service as well. But uh, satellites and uh, uh, telecommunication computers and so forth if that whole area goes down and the power structure goes down, uh, how, how are they going to operate to transmit? So you need some other uh, kind of a, a system to uh, fulfill that need. Uh, Red Cross has mobile units that has like a van, let's say, that uh, they have mostly antennas on. Uh, I don't know if they've updated and changed, but uh, the last time uh, we purchased or they purchased from us was for these uh, mobile vans that uh, it, it folds out on the top of the roof, extends up. And then in that uh, van is a complete communication center with a transmitter, receiver and so forth. And then they get into the local area and then they'll go by foot, you know, the police department or whatever to uh, get the things they need or the help they need and so forth. So very mobile. You know, this day and age, we've become so dependent, most of us, on things like the Internet, cell phones. I mean, very few people even have landlines even these days. Is it fair to say that it's risky to rely on these forms of communication with your loved ones? Well, it's risky to a degree uh, without getting uh, overboard. Normal communications, the normal ham radio backup the normal state and local emergency backups should work. But if there's ever a serious disaster, like say a dirty bomb, we're always worried about terrorists and all this, uh, that would take out a dirty bomb, for example, in an area a mile away would take out in a complete city's uh, uh, communication capability. In other words, any digital uh, component would be dead. You couldn't start your car, couldn't use your cell phone, couldn't use your computer. So, so what do you do? You need some alternate type. And if you really uh, want to be protected, protected, you go back to the old uh, tube type uh, radios that are impervious to any kind of electromagnetic uh, force like that, mm. uh, unless it's a direct hit or something like that. But uh, uh, those kind of systems uh, are important in a real, real disaster. We're talking, you know, something very, very bad. But under normal conditions, uh, the ham radio will fulfill most of the emergency needs, as will, for example, uh, 
we made a whole bunch of antennas for uh, hospital networks. They have them on the roofs of their hospital. And these are big beams. These are log periodics that they can communicate from uh, a hospital in New York to a hospital in Memphis to get information or a special surgeon to put them on the radio to help or, or whatever. So there are networks uh, that uh, have been uh, thought through that uh, keep us pretty well protected. This is all fascinating to me, not something that, that I know too much about. Now, given the stay-at-home orders in place all over the country and many places in the world, has it been beneficial for you during this time to be able to communicate over ham radio? Oh, yeah. I've uh, had some health issues and been sort of uh, a homebody for a while. So this pandemic hasn't been a, a, a real uh, a strain on me because I'm sort of used to it lately. Mm-hmm. But uh, the fact that you can right now, if people that are stuck in their house and uh, want to stay home, which they should, uh, turn on a radio and uh, have an appointment to meet a friend on a certain frequency. To give you an example, uh, 45 years ago, I met a fella on the radio that uh, we became friends over the radio to the point that when I got married, he came to my wedding. Wow. So, so here, when I want to talk to somebody or uh, I check on him, say, John, how you doing? We meet at a certain frequency. We had a rendezvous at 72.25, which is on 40 meters, sideband, uh, a, a mode of communication. And uh, we would talk, see how his family is, so forth and so on. Anything you need, so forth and so on. So people are doing that all over, and it will definitely make the four walls expand if you're uh, sort of cloistered right now. Sure. Now, so- how should someone interested in ham radio or in emergency communication preparedness start to get involved with ham radio? Well, the first thing to do is to uh, uh, you can get on the Internet, look up ARRL and books that are for uh, how to become a ham radio operator that still exists. Uh, also, locally, uh, if they have a friend that's a ham uh, there's a clubs in the area that they can introduce you to it and help you get started. And if you don't have that, you can go back to that ARRL and ask them, say, Hey, I live in, uh, uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and, uh, you got any clubs there? I'm interested in ham radio. Can you direct me to someone that will get them in the right, uh, right direction. And from there, fellow hams will help him or her. Uh, get their license. And once they get their license, it opens up a whole new world. And the other thing about licensing, in the early days, you had technicians and that things were much more technical. Today, uh, they've uh, loosened up on the regulation somewhat. And just about anybody can get a uh, ham license if they have a, a normal IQ and read and write and so forth, it shouldn't be a, a, a big deal because they've made it uh, a less of a uh, uh, ordeal to get their license. And there's degrees of licensing. So uh, a person coming in uh, on the on the basic licenses can still have all the fun and talk all around the world that they want to. 
Oh, that's great. And I hope that uh, some people who are interested start to take these first steps. One final question, though, for people who maybe have gotten started, maybe they're at that beginner stage, they get their license. Is it important at that point to have some kind of specific plan in place for how you'd use it for emergency communication? God forbid there is an emergency. I think so. I, I think what you can do is go back to this. Uh, at, once you got your license, you're now communicating with fellow ham operators. And there's a lot of women in it. There's a lot of young people in it. There's a lot more more older people because we're sort of the uh, main front line of, of getting this going years ago. But uh, uh, by uh, getting with groups, and the uh, races uh, programs, they, they outline, here's what you need to do, here's who you need to get in touch with, and have a basic plan, like it, it depends on how sophisticated you want to be. Do you want to be completely standalone and say, okay, the power goes out, I want to be able to still communicate, so forth, so well, and I need a um, gas generator of some type, not a big one, but enough just to run a radio. Uh, 100 watts, which isn't much, um, an antenna, portable antenna that you can throw up in case a uh, storm comes through and antennas are down or what have you. Uh, set that up, be able to communicate with other people. Uh, and it, you know, get more and more sophisticated. I don't know what, how deep you want me to go into this, but, uh, yeah, a plan is good to have that by being in touch with other people. Cause like, let's say there's an emergency call. There's a Missouri traffic net that starts here in uh, Missouri at uh, a frequency of uh, uh, 30, 38, uh, 39, And it starts every day at five forty-five. And everybody from the state of Missouri checks into that net that's involved with the net. So let's say the person you're talking about wants to have a plan. Well, he would, get involved with that net and check in so he knows where to go. And if there is an emergency, the net will become active and he can join into that net and communicate with fellow people to find out what's happening, how bad it is and so forth, get information. So that's as far as I'd go on a, on a general basis. I can't get more specific than that, not knowing what the circumstances are. Oh, that is absolutely plenty. I think that's very valuable to our listeners. Um, and I really appreciate you taking the time, Mr. Wordek. How could people uh, who want to learn more about Mosley Electronics and the product, how could how could they find that out? Well, we're on the web at uh, mosley-electronics.com. And uh, we're in the uh, uh, magazines of the uh, um Industry, you know, AWRL, QST, and so forth, but mainly on the internet. Do a search for antennas. Like I say, we're the oldest antenna manufacturer in the United States, and uh, we pride ourselves with uh, quality products and quality material and all American labor and so forth and so on. <laughs> well, that's great. We really appreciate you joining us. We wish all uh, health and safety to you and your loved ones. Okay, same to you, Mike, and thanks for the opportunity. And uh, everybody take care, and uh, we'll be fine. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G. in the Morning with The Law Matters. 
only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. What a fascinating guest. I absolutely loved that. And I've got Philly, Chris, and Jose with me to join in on the aftermath. Philly, Chris, you with us? Yeah, I'm here, Mike. Yeah, that was great. How about Jose? You with us? I'm here, Mike. Jose, you being our uh, new resident uh, ham radio guy, <laughs> what did you think about all that? It was absolutely amazing. I, I was always starstruck just listening to the man. He's incredibly humble, incredibly articulate, and uh, it's kind of like listening to, to kind of Bill Gates or Steve Jobs. And the guy's incredibly just knowledgeable and uh, it's and very passionate about what he does and about ham radio. So yeah, it's great. Thank you for having him. Uh, might be the most successful person I've ever spoken to in my entire life, right? Because <laughs> <laughs> he's not only a businessman, he's a pioneer. Guy's an absolute genius. Uh, Mosley, from what I understand, this is the Rolls Royce of antennas. Is that fair to say, Jose? Well, they're they're just one of they're one of the best known companies. I mean, it's like I said, it's uh, it's just incredibly uh, humbling to hear the man speak, and he is so so humble. That you know, it just he just goes up even uh, more notches in my respect the meter because of how brilliant the man obviously is, how accomplished he is, and how incredibly down to earth he is. So yeah, it's it's a great interview. Thank you for having him again. It's great. So did that give you any uh, new perspectives on alternate forms of communication like ham radio? Oh yeah, absolutely. You know, it's funny because when you you know when you hear um, people speak that have all this experience, they um, casually bring up points that you don't you know you take don't take for, or you take for granted, you know, because you just didn't know. And he had mentioned about those nets. I don't know if, uh, if, um, you remember that part of when he was talking about the, the net, a net, N-E-T is just a gathering of people, uh, mm. of ham radio operators. And they have, um, usually radio clubs, local radio ham clubs, um, have, or also amateur radio clubs, ham is another name for amateur radio. Um, enthusiasts, uh, they have local gatherings where sometimes it's once a day, sometimes it's once a week, where they just get together, they check in, there's a particular protocol, and they just um, say, hey, how, how they're doing, um, how things have been going, and if they need anything. And so for someone that's kind of interested in emergency communications, that's a great place to start is getting a radio finding a local net, N-E-T, and just listening, because you can't really do anything until you get your, your license anyway. You can't push the push the talk button. You can't talk, until, but you can listen and learn. So that was a great um, way, uh, a great point that he made. You may not have to have a radio, special radio ninja kit in your basement. All the, it, it just has something that you can connect to your local net, know how to access it, and if in case you need to speak to someone, you can reach out in an emergency to 10, 15, 20, sometimes even 60, 80, 100 people at a time. Now, Philly, Chris, uh, you're the kind of guy who I'm always surprised to learn something new about you. Uh, <laughs> and you seem to have your hands in just about everything. Do you have any connection to ham radio or anything like that? Uh, well, you know, when I was young, a good friend of mine growing up, his uh, father, who actually had a shop in his basement working on electronics and TVs and stereos had a big old ham radio down there and this huge antenna up on the roof. So, of course, as kids, we used to love going down there and turning the thing on and turning the dials until we heard somebody. And 
I guess we were bouncing signals off the ionosphere as we began to talk to these folks illegally as children. I, I can I guess I can admit that now as a minor, <laughs> as right? Statute of limitations. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Yeah, I think so. I hope so anyway. But uh but yeah, and as the FCC good. descends, as the FCC descends on the, the household, right? Uh, yeah, right. Yeah, right. <laughs> I never did push the well hypothetical. I don't think I did push the I can you sound like Bill, you sound like Bill Clinton now, right? <laughs> <laughs> I have never pushed that button. I did not push that button. <laughs> I did not. <laughs> but, uh, but I got uh, yeah, some yeah. old uh, resistors and diodes and integrated circuit chips just laying around. So when you guys were chatting, I was going to start building sort of like a heat kit, uh, uh, maybe my own. <laughs> I'll have to catch up with you later, Jose, and see if we can get talk about getting this license when I throw it together. But now, Chris. Chris. Chris, one of the things that he said that uh, brought me back to a conversation you and I had off the air is when he started talking about uh, if there was some kind of an EMP that yeah. vehicles would not even work anymore. Uh, you had spoken about that to me in the past. Do you know yeah. about that? Yeah, my understanding with that is, uh, you know, uh, an EMP would create such an electromagnetic pulse and uh, it destroys some of the internal circuitry, I think specifically with the integrated circuit chips because they're so delicate uh, increases in the in the voltage. So I know a lot of the military equipment has um, Faraday cages built around the equipment, which is almost like a copper webbing or shield. Um, and I think there's some other things to it, of course. But uh yeah, so a lot of modern equipment nowadays, you know, if that were to happen, uh, would just immediately stop working. Most cars, you know, cell phones, computers, all that stuff, unless it had that military-grade uh, protection around it. So it is it is a bit scary, yeah. So about. what do you do for vehicles? Uh, do you have to have a, a pre-1960s vehicle laying around? Well, I have a uh, 1942 uh, Beetle, <laughs> like 20 feet underground right now under copper. Um, but no, that's okay. I actually don't need to. But yeah, that, I've heard, though, people building their own Faraday cage. <laughs> well, well, you know, believe it or not, they have something called, I think, Faraday wallets or Faraday pouches for mm. cell phones. Um, oh, yeah. For RIFD-enabled uh, credit cards and ID cards and passports. You know, um, I, I can't put, put my your, car in there, though, right? Well, you can't <laughs> put a real big one there. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so it's 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 pretty interesting. And you know, it's and they Mike, we had talked on the podcast about the uh, that National Geographic uh, uh, documentary um, called uh, American Blackout uh-huh. in 2013. I don't know if you've uh, if you remember us discussing it, but it's yeah. actually a National Geographic uh, documentary about what would happen over eight days, the breakdown of uh, of society, if there's an EMP, an electromagnetic pulse. And right. people go from having having a party to, you know, um, hunting each other for water, you know? So it's uh, it's pretty interesting. So I've got my Flintstone-style car where I can push myself up to wherever I need to go. It's either that or a pogo stick. That's the way I look at it. Well, you know, it's funny. We, we laugh, right? But Something as simple as, okay, from a preparedness standpoint, do you have a local topographical map with paths laid out in case, you know, you have to get from point A to point B? And does, you know, your significant other have it too? What's a, to what's a to map? Navigate? If, yeah, exactly. Not something <laughs> oh, you bring up on your paper phone. Because yeah. yeah. <laughs> your phone is going to be a uh, is going to be a brick, pretty much a useless <laughs> brick. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you can't look up Google Maps. You actually have to, uh, or a compass to be able to ha- have a general idea of, hey, wait a second. What direction am I from work to home if I have to walk? Right. Right. 
You know, I thought it was interesting. You said that uh, for passing the licensure requirement with respect to ham radio, that uh, for the most part, as long as you can read or write. And I was starting to think, what about for those of us who can't read or write? Then what do we get into for alternate <laughs> forms of communication? I thought about carrier pigeon, but then I realized you need to be able to read and write in order to do that as well, right? <laughs> well, back in the day, you know, back in the day, they, they had to know Morse code to get the technician's mm. license. You had to know Morse code. Huh. Um, up to about, I believe it was 10 or 12 years ago. Um, you couldn't get your entry level license without it. So when the old school guys say hey, it's much, you know, it's much easier now, yeah, it is. You don't have to know Morse code. Right. Well, um, well, to do smoke signals, you got to know Morse code too, right? <laughs> I don't know about that, but yeah, uh, it's challenging. It would seem that that's the way. I don't know too much about smoke signals, but it's it would seem that that's the way you would do it if you're going to throw up SOS or something like that. No? You, know, you know what's cool, and I've been working on this. I'm not done yet, but they discovered over at the CERN accelerator, the particle accelerator, that through uh, quantum entanglement, you can entangle electrons and actually communicate faster than the speed of light. So I'm not done yet, but I just started. That. <laughs> you and the Christopher Lloyd are working on that in the basement? Yeah, yeah, the flux capacitor. yeah, that's right. That's right. But uh, oddly enough, everything I just said is actually true, but I just, except for the part that I have my uh, project started, which um, mm. but the rest of it is. Yeah. What it's else is going on? You said there's something about satellites going up there. Yeah, you know, it'd be really interesting if we had him on again sometime, Mike, because I've been looking at the uh, Starlink satellites that are being put up through SpaceX right now. And um, it looks like at some point there will be upwards of almost 40,000 new satellites in the sky over the next few years. I know they have several hundred of them up there right now and uh, still digging into that. I don't completely understand yet exactly what they'll be used for, but it looks like it'll be. We don't know the purpose. I, I, well, I know what they're telling us it is, and that's going to be some sort of new communications network using lasers between the satellites, which is going to surround the globe. You can actually see them if anyone's listening and they go out at night in the clear sky and you pay attention. You'll see them fly over on occasion, uh, and they'll look like a train. There'll be several of them. There's videos on YouTube. You can check it out. It's going to be a new Internet and banking system in the sky, which is pretty interesting and intriguing. And uh, some possibly something to do with the, the new 5G technology that's coming out. And I would imagine they'll have some other capabilities that we probably don't know about yet. But uh, something is, to keep an eye on. Is Elon Musk involved with this? He is. Yeah, he's actually launching them using the SpaceX rockets. And they're launching upwards of, I believe, 60 uh, at a time in some of these rockets. And they'll be doing more of that. And eventually, what's interesting, the, the only thing, I, I'm into astronomy. I love looking at the stars. And it will change the night sky eventually because it's going to weave across the sky in a pattern. You know, some will go, you know, like north to south, for example, and then some will go the opposite, east to west, and they'll cross this pattern. So at any point, you could literally be in the most deserted area uh, on the planet in the middle of the Amazon. You pull out a phone that can link to these satellites and you'll have higher speed Internet than we even have now on a desktop. I believe it's only a 43 second uh, lag millisecond. Lag time. It's going to be pretty interesting. Yeah. So we'll keep an eye on that. Yeah. For those of us just tuning in, you're listening to Mike G in the morning with the Law Matters, only on Fox News Radio, WFYL. Guys, let's talk a little bit more about guns. You know, I saw an article pop into my inbox the other day with pure knuckleheadery talking about how. Yeah, the coronavirus is deadly. It's lethal, but not nearly as lethal as firearms. I thought that was absolutely ridiculous. I sent it over to you guys. Uh, the basic premise, I mean, you know, I know people who have 
contracted coronavirus. Do you guys know anybody who's contracted firearms over the last few weeks? Well, not only that, Mike, but I don't know anybody who's really had to be spontaneously intubated because they have touched a, <laughs> a firearm. All right. right. Tells me, yeah, she mm. tells me horror stories of yeah. them having to intubate people. I'm on a regular basis. So, yeah, that was I, I literally threw up a little in my mouth when you sent that to me. And I started reading through the article. So thank you for sharing. That. It's yeah. like you touch the gun and then you touch your, You wipe your nose with your hand. Right. Then it's mm. all over. <laughs> or you have any uh, gunpowder residue on your hands and you just, it just actually gets to a mucus membrane. <laughs> your respiratory system seizes up. Well, here's what I was thinking. You know, what, what do you, what's the death rate for COVID-19 right now? If, if we wanted to be outrageous, what would it be? I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say we have no idea. I think, unfortunately, I don't. Okay, know. Uh, but what if we? What is it? Three percent? Is that that high? That seems a bit on the high side, but right. Yeah. So let's say it was three percent. Imagine if three percent of anybody who came into contact with firearms died. Could you imagine that? <laughs> yeah, that would be quite, uh, quite troubling, quite shocking. Uh, why do they keep making these comparisons, though? Uh, you have any ideas, Jose? I just think they just springboard from, you know, just the anxiety and the uh, and the, the fear that that COVID-19 is generating, you know, using that as a springboard um, to kind of conflate COVID-19 with uh, with firearms, you know, mm. firearms ownership and, and firearms uh, and gun deaths or gun violence, whatever that means. So, uh, right. Because right. regular plain old uh, murder, that doesn't cut it. Right. You got to specifically narrow it down. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's, it's, it's unbelievable. They, they have no no basis in fact whatsoever. But uh, you know that. But we're used to it, right? We we we're used to it. Right, guys. Definitely used to it. Chris, what do you think about that? Yeah, so I, I just think that unfortunately everything's being manipulated on both sides of the fence with the gun issue you just mentioned, and then also the more we look into these numbers, it, it does appear that they're being manipulated. And at this point, I don't even know how we'll get to the truth of the actual death rate versus infected rate and this and that because of the test. I know Trump, I believe, announced yesterday that they're going to be releasing a new test. Uh, I look forward to digging into that and finding out if it's more specific to the COVID-19 or or if it's still going to pick up the other SARS uh, viruses like we talked about, I think, last week on the show. So, yeah, it's, it's uh, just unreliable right now, I think, everywhere. I'll tell you what, Chris. I think that Snowflake and Dr. Snakes Wilson ought to look out because – I've got to have a brain to invent a product called coronavirus in a can. What do you think of that? Oh, <laughs> well, you better patent it. Just like the uh, scratch and sniff. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think it was Dr. Shi over in uh, Wuhan who patented uh, the, the COVID-19. So you better get a patent on that. Uh, okay, maybe we'll end up in a legal battle with you. <laughs> <laughs> It'll be no. worth it, though. All seriousness, I, th- I think that uh, a lot of people have had family members affected. I- I'm just going to go out there and say it. Uh, Mrs. G's mother and stepfather uh, did have coronavirus. And thank God they have not been hospitalized. It looks like they are pulling through stronger than ever. And, you know, we thank everybody for the prayers who's been in our lives as far as that goes. But, you know, some people have not been so fortunate. Uh, Eric Weborg from Texas, uh, one of the legal analysts on this program, has been on a number of times. There's a very good friend named Cesar Paredes, and Cesar lost his life to COVID-19 very recently. Very sad story. Young man in his 30s, and, uh, you know, we really feel for his family, for his loved ones, for his friends. 
you know, Olympic gold medalist and former WWE superstar Kurt Angle actually made a video, uh, you know, sending his condolences based on Caesar's death. So we, we want to extend our condolences as a program to not only uh, Caesar's family, but his close friends and uh, Eric Weborg. So, uh, you know, our thoughts and prayers go out to Caesar's loved ones gone way too soon. Now, one concern of a lot of people is the government overreach during this pandemic. Now, is this an opportunity for the government to go too far and make government overreach the new normal? You know, Russ, you had pulled up a clip earlier, hadn't you? Uh, yes, this clip that we're about to play is from is from King Murphy uh, of New Jersey. He's not actually <laughs> oh, the king. Oh, the king of New don't worry, he's not actually the king. He's just acting like one and commanding his subjects to stay home, or he's gonna enforce. He's gonna have his henchmen enforce the law on them. <laughs> hear ye, hear ye! Gather round, peasants. <laughs> Here's that clip. We want to be very clear about what is essential. We want you to assume that everything that's not on that list is not essential. And that if you are a business and you make something or you happen to be a business of any sort uh, that we didn't uh, ask to be closed down, you got to have 100% work from home policies in place and we expect people to stay home. And I would just say one more wrinkle on this is earlier last week we said if you're traveling around the state between 8 p.m. and 5, p 5 a.m. and you're non-essential, uh, we want you off the roads. We're basically saying that's now 24 hours. We don't want you out there, period. Pat, will you just talk a little bit about how we're going to enforce this and anyone else who wants to weigh in? I will, and I, I know that um, yesterday we held the Attorney General hosted the phone call, which the, the governor and I participated in. Uh, the Attorney General outlined the guidance. That guidance has been put out, John, it was last week, to the degree that all 21 county prosecutors have designated an assistant prosecutor to be on call. Uh, the 2C statute, there's a few different ones, but it's it's predominantly a disorderly conduct charge. Uh, so when the governor not when says we'll take action, uh, we're at that point. Uh, last week, I know I talked about discretion and that being the greatest tool of law enforcement, but um, I think we're beyond that now, uh, given uh, the measures that we've placed. And I just think if we hadn't put the measures we did in a couple of weeks ago, where would we be today with the numbers? You know, so that's a that will take action. Is uh, all, all police departments, all chiefs were advised of uh, what those charging manuals are and what, where they could find them, and uh, all of law enforcement, including all 21 county prosecutors, are ready to uh, enforce them and, and prosecute them. Wow, are you kidding me? That Sounds pretty makes, exciting over there. Listen, I. I I understand that there are measures that may be able to prevent the spread of COVID-19 and that there are things that, um, you know, decisions people have to make certain sacrifices in order to protect people who are at risk. However, when you put it in a way the way he did, that makes me want to go to New Jersey just to walk around. <laughs> just to, I'm getting just in my car now. Out actually. of pure defiance. I, I mean, that's I, we called him the king. That sounds more like uh, a leg breaker, right? You know, you we catch you coming out of your house. 
I'm gonna break your legs. <laughs> He's gonna take I, your kneecaps. Uh, here. <laughs> I guess we're all non-essential now. He said everybody was right. They, uh, listen, we will tell you who's important, who's not important. <laughs> you peasants gotta stay in the house, and if you come on out, then there's gonna be serious problems. That is outrageous. There's a way that you talk to people to get a goal accomplished. That is not it. Do you agree? I, I, I'm, I'm at a loss for words. I, you know, in my whole life, I never thought I would hear a, a high official in our government talk to uh, the population of a state that way. This is pretty uh, intriguing stuff. Uh, it's crazy. It seems a little crazy, right? Am I wrong? Uh, it seems outrageous. Jose, yeah. you know, you're somebody who uh, I thought uh, from our conversations has taken COVID-19 fairly seriously, uh, even when some people are playing it off. But hearing the government come on out and make those kinds of demands, does that irritate you at all? Well, yeah, uh, it's kind of a gray area. You know, I'm, I'm in the middle of the fence, to be absolutely honest with you. And you know how anti-government control I am, Mike. But living with a medical professional um, and watching all of the sides of the argument, um, there's definitely a disconnect um, with the information we're getting. Um, one side is presenting the information, the 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 virus is not a big deal and the other side is presenting it as kind of a doomsday and the answer really is somewhere in the middle and i don't hear medical professionals talking about how serious it is not politicians mm. medical professionals mm. and i live with a medical professional and um you know and the only time i've ever heard that you know my wife say i am scared and my wife doesn't get scared of anything um is with this this disease um, which leads me to believe that there's a lot of information out there that we're not being given um, and that we all need to know. And I just I say this honestly because no one is really saying it. And I think it needs to happen. You know, this this virus is killing indiscriminately. You know, um, it's there's never been a natural virus with this degree of virulence and infectivity that indiscriminately kills a young babies, otherwise healthy people. And there's nothing that medical professionals can do to fight it, you know? Mm. Um, and it isn't something that just, you know, it suddenly, you know, just appears, you know, it doesn't, it, it you know, even naturally mutating organisms, you know, and I was having a conversation with my wife. Um, it takes years, decades for it to happen to this degree, you know? Um, and it is scaring frontline physicians. Um, and frontline physicians are dying. People are dying indiscriminately. And so I, you know, again, I step back and I listen to all the sides and I just don't hear anyone taking it really as seriously as it really should be. And I don't mean to sound like an alarmist. Um, I just, again, even Ebola, you know, the scariest violent, you know, the scariest virus to date, um, still hasn't mutated to the degree that this thing is mutated, you know, and now we're hearing possible rumors of it being biologically engineered. Well, duh, right. you know. Well, I mean, why were we supposed to that. ignore the fact that you had the Wuhan, Wuhan lab over there? I don't understand why. I don't understand yeah. why we're supposed to ignore that all this time. But, Jose, I've, I've got another uh, thing that I wanted to mention, and sorry to interrupt you, but you keep talking about your wife living with a medical professional. And I don't know uh, what we are or are not supposed to say on the air, but your wife's graduated from Yale Medical School. She's top-notch, serves on national boards, uh, head of a, a trauma unit, right? Is that correct? Yeah, I, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not at liberty to disclose her credentials online, but she's very, very accomplished in her field. Um, and again, when my wife said to me, 
you know, uh, I am afraid and I hope I live to my next birthday. That, you know, is saying something to me uh, from that from a woman who is afraid of nothing. She sees people in all sorts of situations, uh, you know, that we can even imagine. She's had her hand inside chest massaging hard to keep people alive. So, you know, um, again, that, that's just what keeps playing in my mind. When I hear, again, the left saying one thing, the right saying another, and, and uh, you know, no one really meeting in the middle. And this is really, really serious, you know. And so I'm torn as someone that wants the country to open up again. Um, I have a sneaking suspicion that if we open up, the which we need to to get, you know, to get our economy back on track it's going to escalate and start up again, you know, and we're not really focusing. I think what we need to focus on and, and underscoring the severity and the seriousness of this, of this virus. And that's but, my but, two cents. But I think that regardless of how serious it is, uh, the, the message that's being portrayed by King Philip over there is not one that's going to uh, get any kind of positive response from the people. Is that fair oh, to sure. say? Sure. But, you know, but but there is a way to convey that message that this is serious and there are measures that we need to take without saying we're going to decide who is important, who is not important. Mm -hmm. You better not come out. And if you do come out, these are going to be the consequences. (laughs) Well, you're absolutely well, you're absolutely right. But you got to understand that it's human nature for us as Americans to become complacent. And, you know, we're not having honest dialogues. Right. So, you know, I can understand I'm not condoning his approach, but how do you tell people that have been cooped up for five weeks or however long that really want to go out? The weather's getting nice. Hey, you know what? Um, don't go out. You can really you can die. It doesn't really there's no rhyme or reason to this. And I think that th- that harkens back to the fact that we're not having the serious conversations as to how um, virulent and destructive this virus is, mm-hmm. you know, and. So, so how do you control it? If you, you can't, you know, you have to have honest dialogues with people, you know, and say, listen, stuff's really bad. This is, this is what's going to happen. This is what, can, what, what has happened to people, old, young, strong, weak. It doesn't matter. Pre-existing conditions, no pre-existing conditions. And so, you know, um, this is what we need to do as a people to actually seriously, um, uh, lower the numbers of infection. You know, I think he's going, he's, he's, he's coming across from the total other opposite extreme, right? you know, but mm-hmm. yeah, I think my point is if we had more open and honest dialogues, I <laughs> think that, you know, people would understand the need to be able to take this as seriously. Fair point. Fair point. I, I think mm-hmm. that our listeners uh, understand that uh, honesty is important and that perhaps if uh, somebody were to come on out there and just explain why there are concerns Rather than say the government is going to do X, Y, and Z if you do not follow our orders, uh, they'd get a much more positive response from mm-hmm. people who listen to this program, at least. Chris, oh, you've got exactly. a Bible verse for us today. Yeah, you know, and is there, do, do we have time if I talk about the virus real quick? Because I jotted a couple notes down I wanted to go over since we were on that topic before we wrapped up. You got is 30 right? seconds. Yeah. yeah. Um, Dr. Shi Zengli, Z-H-E-N-G-L-I, you can look her up on Wikipedia, born May 26, 1964. She works in the Chinese, as a Chinese virologist and a, a researcher at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. And it's come out recently through some documentation that's available online that she was able to unlock the key to the human cells and create a passageway using the S proteins off of the SARS virus to synthesize a way to remove the need for an intermediate host 
and it matches up almost 100% pretty much uh, with the virus that's currently out there and traveling around. So it looks like there's a high probability it came out of the lab she worked in. Wow. Um, but anyway, talking about the data real quick before we run out of time, the concern I really have, and I know we make light of this on the show because you want to make people laugh, but here we're talking about a governor, one of the largest states, telling people to stay in their homes based on metrics, data that we still do not understand. That's what concerns me. Somebody needs to hold them accountable, I think, like you were saying, Jose, to say, wait a minute, what is the data you're using? Because I also discovered recently that hospitals are receiving upwards of $45,000 for each individual they incubate. So when you follow the money, it seems like there's some um, possibility that they might have incentive to misdiagnose people or maybe put them on ventilators when it isn't. I'm not saying the medical professionals are doing that either. I don't know. But, I, well, uh, and I... Yeah, yeah, and I hear I hear what you're saying, and, and I'm right yeah. with your brother, right? But I know for a fact that you know that physicians were jerry rigging their own masks last week because right. right. they didn't have enough masks and face shields. Sure, you know mm-hmm. I, I had to worry about whether or not my wife would survive because she, you know, she couldn't get a mask to wear. Yeah, she had to reuse her current masks. And the one constant, this, aside from all the metrics, the one constant is this: if you're exposed to someone that has it you're going to probably catch it, right? right? So isolation is the only way to actually reduce the transmission of this until we figure out how to stop it. I mean, right. it's, not, it's not rocket, regardless of, of the metrics. I like the way Jose says it better than King Philip, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, and that's yeah. what you got to say. Yeah, right? yeah. Be honest and say, this is really bad stuff. Yeah. Um, and don't, you know, and don't, uh, you know, don't try to blow smoke, uh, at smoke signals at people because, you know, people aren't stupid. They, you sure. know, they may ignore you and say, Hey, it's a nice day. Let me go on and have a good time. Well, that's all the time we've got for today. Thank you for sticking around. Make sure you tune into We the People, The Constitution Matters. Pastor David Whitney, Professor Phil Duffy, I'll be joining as the legal analyst. Stay safe and God bless, folks. And now, a word from our sponsor. Dad, what, what? What's your uh, emergency? Yes, um, I, I, there's a burglar in my oh, house. Oh, sorry, could you please hold for a minute? Uh, no, uh, there's, there's, there's a burglar in my house, and I'm afraid for the well-being myself and my family I hear him right uh, outside the door. He's rummaging through all of our stuff. I need somebody here right away. This is happening now, you're saying? Right now, there's a burglar in my house. I'm sorry. Uh, I don't know if you noticed the recent uh, things in the news. We're no longer responding to those types of uh, things right now. If you could call back in about a week or so, we'll probably what be able to get to you. What do you mean call back? This is a burglar in my house. What do you mean call you back in a week? I understand, sir. We have uh, important uh, COVID-related issues to deal with right now. I do apologize for the inconvenience, but we will get back to you at a later date. you, you got to be kidding me. I, I didn't want to do this, but I am going to walk outside my house without wearing a mask. Oh, wait a second. I'm sorry. You don't have a mask? You don't, you don't have a mask? I'm going to walk you? outside my house without a mask. All right, hold on a second. I'm going to do it. Come in. Uh, what, what's the address over there? We're going to get somebody over there probably in the next 30 seconds. Uh, 123 Maple Street. 123 okay, Maple Street. I'm walking outside without a mask. I've All right, no hang mask. on. We have a helicopter on the way. I, I am breathing. I am breathing All right, air outside. It. Take the boys and surround the house. Hey, come out. Come hey. out with your hands up. I, my, my hands are up. My hands are up. The burglar's inside. Come out. Get on the ground! The, the burglar, Get on the ground! Stop talking! I'm getting on the ground. The burglar's inside. Hands over your face. Uh, the, the hands are over my face. The, the burglar's inside. 
We're not worried about the burglar. You don't have a mask on. Come with us. You gotta be kidding me. Boy, could this guy have used a bag of bees. Snowflake, Snowflakington here. Don't forget to get yourself a bag of bees.